Ian Williams, president of the Foreign Press Association in New York. And our guest today, um, a delayed guest because of technical uh, problems we had, uh, is Dr. Bandy Lee, current president of the World Mental Health Coalition and organizer, stroke editor, of the book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 37 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President, uh, which was published in, 19, in, in 2017, uh, and uh, was, I would say, completely vindicated by events. Uh, they assessed that Donald Trump was not really mentally fit to have control of the nuclear football or the White House or anything much at all, really. Uh, as we've shown, he was mentally unfit, commercially unfit to run hotels, airlines, and um, and what else was it? Oh, uh, casinos. And I have to say, I have a particular thing here that uh, when I first came to the US 30 years ago, I couldn't quite understand the hero worship. And I did a business analysis of Donald Trump and found that everything he touched turned to ashes. And yet he still kept getting praised. And this dissociation between reality and perception obviously works here because Alan Dershowitz, a quote, renowned, unquote, legal scholar, was prominent in forcing Dr. Bandy Lee out of Yale uh, for this dangerous precedent of assessing a president. Um, and I'd like to, because there are rules about this, and the rules are that you, I think the psychological, the American Psychological Association says that you should not attempt a medical assessment or psychological assessment of somebody without their consent. And I think there's an exception here, as one of the things I discovered when I came to the US was that you could not libel a public figure. And I thought this was wonderful with the libel laws in Britain. And I seriously think that whatever the American Psychological Association said about as a general rule does not apply to public figures, where it's a public necessity that if somebody has the future of the world in, the, in, in his or her hands, they should be assessed and by the most quality, qualified people, um, rather than crowds of uh, holiday makers in Mar-a-Lago. So, uh, Bandy, could you please explain to us how the book came about and uh, what, what the conclusions were? Yes, well, again, thank you again for having me uh, a second time. And um, the book came about because, well, with the election of Donald Trump, a number of us became quite concerned. And I started asking around uh, my colleagues and we were all in agreement that this was a very dangerous, a psychologically dangerous figure to be in the US presidency. And my old colleague from Harvard, Judith Herman, uh, author of Trauma and Recovery, she wrote uh, a letter to President Obama asking for a neuropsychiatric evaluation of the president-elect at the time. Um, and so it seemed quite matter of fact in our minds that our professional society- Can we get that clear? She, she, asked for, she asked Obama for a psychological evaluation of Trump? That's right. Okay. <laughs> and the letter became public. And so I got, it, got back in touch with her for the first time in something like seven years. And um, we uh, decided that something needed to be done, that we couldn't simply sit back because particularly because the signs that we were seeing were beyond 
uh, the range of normal that everyday people beyond eccentricity. <laughs> yes, it, that it wasn't just normal variation of uh, eccentricities or um, quirks that would still be tolerable, but in fact indicated a dangerous unfitness and also an ability to beguile the public in ways that could dangerously mislead and, and rally people into a fervent uh, following, which only uh, this kind of mental pathology could do. And so um, the book came about after a conference that I organized at Yale School of Medicine in early 2017. So soon after inauguration, um, I got my colleagues together because uh, surprisingly, not many wished to come forth. And whenever I drafted letters, uh, initially um, private letters to Congress members, uh, none of them would sign on. Uh, and when I asked why, they were afraid that their names would be leaked and they would be targeted uh, by litig litigious president and also could be targeted by his followers, which we knew already back then that they could become violent. And so, uh, so I thought that there could be a strength in numbers. And also there was the issue of the American Psychiatric Association um, high, not just reaffirming, as they said, but they uh, amplified and created an entirely new gag order with the Trump presidency out of the so-called Goldwater rule. Because uh, contrary to what you mentioned earlier, it's not a rule. It's not, it's actually um, not even accepted among scholars as being relevant any longer. And certainly in practice, we don't any longer require a personal examination for diagnosis since 1980. Uh, and yet, this rule was modified, uh, this guideline was modified to uh, supersede all other rules. Could, and could, I, could I pause here and say, who? Who? <laughs> this idea did not just float out of the ether. It wasn't divine inspiration like the hand of God coming down. Presumably there were people behind it. <laughs> I believe it was the leadership of the APA at the time, because even the ethics committee after coming out with this new statement uh, that the Goldwater rule meant something other than what we understood it to be, that is, uh, you can't just... Uh, and we, sh we should explain again here, the Goldwater rule was a response to a similar evaluation of Goldwater, the uh, what, what was then an extreme conservative, but now seems a very nice liberal right. <laughs> presidential candidate. <laughs> So in 1964, there was a presidential campaign where um, Barry Goldwater was a candidate. And uh, because of his extremist statements, people had questioned his mental state. There was a tabloid magazine that put out a, uh, a survey of uh, psychiatrists at the time and came back with only about 10% of the surveyed psychiatrists coming back and saying, uh, all, giving him all kinds of diagnoses that he was a latent homosexual and had um, you know, toilet training problems and all kinds of things that you would not be able to assess and you would not be able to diagnose him according to the criteria at that time. Now, of course, that has changed and that we have a lot more information about our public figures and also diagnosis is done not necessarily by personal introspective interviews alone. Um, and certainly what we were commenting on, which are fitness and dangerousness, 
have nothing to do with diagnosis. These are uh, separate uh, mental health evaluations that look at public behavior, look at interactions, and get reports from associates and coworkers. Uh, so it has nothing to do with diagnosis. Uh, but the APA, um, it was initially the ethics committee that put this out. I know many members personally, and they were very ambivalent about it. They questioned even themselves. And then they were flooded with protest letters from other psychiatrists and assumed that they would hold another meeting and modify what they had said because it was an error. Uh, well, the APA leadership intervened and never allowed another meeting. I don't think they've ever held another meeting on the issue ever again. And uh, also um, uh, blocked any kind of discussion or vote in the membership as the membership was demanding. And so there was a slew of uh, resignations from the American Psychiatric Association. And people have said at that time that it was becoming more like the AMA, the American Medical Association, which has in the medical field become irrelevant because it's become too political. And uh, so this is the basis on which they have made claims that we were being unethical, that we were stating things we should not have when in fact we were meeting our societal professional responsibility as we determined at the meeting. Uh, so the conference that we held was in, in part in response to this really alarming, egregious uh, reinterpretation of the Goldwater rule to create a gag order. Um, and we decided that, well, uh, this kind of uh, etiquette um, privilege given to a powerful political figure does not match at all to uh, the kind of obligations we have to societal safety. And uh, so we decided to put out the book. And a few months later, the book came out. It was an unprecedented uh, New York Times bestseller of its kind, an instant bestseller. Uh, we only fell short because there were not enough books available. Uh, uh, but they, they had told us that it would, would probably have been number one. Uh, within three months of the book's publication, we were the number one topic of national conversation. But again, the APA stepped in and blacked us entirely out of media. So if you do not see one single mental health professional in the media, that is reason. Well, how, do, how did they achieve that? Because obviously we are media, so uh, the mechanisms by which people block and uh, unblock people in the media are of deep concern to us and our members. Yes, I hope so. And I hope things like this are not commonplace, although I hear that mm. um, <laughs> these things do happen. So uh, initially, the APA did it through public campaigns. For us, in our minds, it was a misinformation campaign because, as I said, uh, actual psychiatric ethicists and scholars in the area say that the Goldwater rule is not as prominent as it should uh, as as it uh, has become, and that there are many medical ethics that supersede uh, the Goldwater rule, and in fact, that it may be irre irrelevant in our day. In fact, it was considered irrelevant in the time it was entered into the books in 1973. And that's why no other mental health association has adopted it. Um, only the APA has it. And, um, and then, uh, 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 we were told by the media that, uh, oh, oh, and then an intervening event was that the APA uh, put out a, um, 
uh, I think they met with the editorial board of the New York Times and had the editorial board speak up against us, saying, stating that we were being unethical, we were speaking about things we should not speak about. Now, this is the first time that I've seen uh, a newspaper define the parameters of expertise, because experts are usually the ones who say what they can and cannot say. They, they are the ones to define it, not, uh, not a newspaper. And, uh, and along with that, a former president of the APA produced the the only full page op-ed on Donald Trump's mental health, stating that he's just a jerk. He uh, basically broke the Goldwater rule himself to say that Donald Trump is okay, because uh, the way that they changed it was, not only were you not allowed to diagnose, you were not allowed to make any comment whatsoever. Uh, and he was making a comment on Donald Trump. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, I mean, I'm Regret I'm a bit more jaundiced about the media in the New York Times than you, since they established who knew what about weapons of mass destruction in um, oh, <laughs> yes in Iraq. Uh, quite happily, without consulting the real experts, they decided who the experts were. They employed the real experts who yes. recycled what they got from the State Department and the Pentagon. So it is it's not quite so unusual as you think. But um, I mean, in the case of was this political prejudice on behalf of Donald Trump or was it just deference to authority of the kind that the New York Times does so well? Uh, well, I, I think the New York Times itself in the psychiatric field is heavily tied with the uh, pharmaceutical industry because we've seen many examples of that. Uh, in fact, it's very consistent. You will see about 95% of their op-eds by psychiatrists being from uh, pharmaceutical industry tied uh, psychiatrists and, and uh, those who are not, whom we consider to be equal counterparts in the psychiatric field itself, they would hardly ever publish. And in fact, that was accentuated during the Trump era. Uh, the fact that the New York Times refused to do uh, a New York Times bestselling um, uh, book review, uh, in other words, a review of our book, which was uh, claimed to be, uh, which was voted the most courageous, uh, significant uh, book in 2017 for the Washington Post, the New York Times uh, essentially refused to do a review no matter how many offers it got. And a regular reviewer for the New York Times thought that was very unusual that they were actually blocking. So you're implying there's a connection between the pharma industry and uh, the American Psychological Psychiatric Association. Oh, and yes. The New York Times here. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm certainly not questioning this. It seems plausible to me. The, the American Psychiatric Association has uh, received uh, more than a third of its funding from the pharmaceutical industry, so much so that the, that Congress, the US Congress intervened to stop that kind of a relationship. And that was around the time when I uh, resigned from the APA uh, around 2007. And um, and, and this time around, they were trying to protect their government funding. And indeed, since they protected Donald Trump, uh, they have received windfalls of funding, which I find are unprecedented by their standards because they, the way that they've advertised it and the way that they've uh, changed their headquarters from Virginia to uh, downtown Washington, D.C. after this intervention. So I, I believe that they've, they've really enriched themselves as a result. There's the, the past APA president, by the way, whose name is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman, who recently had to resign 
from Colombia and uh, uh, and hospitals and so on um, for being racist. Um, he uh, he received uh, notable increases in funding after he wrote that uh, New York Times op-ed stating that Donald Trump is okay. <laughs> Wow, I mean, it's an even deeper can of worms than I first thought. I mean, oh, you, you, yeah. you seem to have confirmed almost all of my prejudices about the, the corridors well, of power in Washington and the New York Times and, and publishing industry in general. I, I started out very naive. I believe that if we had a valid argument, we could uh, argue based on scholarship alone and uh, whoever is correct would uh, would be eventually the one to win the discourse. but. Uh, since then, I have learned that um, just about everyone seems to be willing to uh, go with the prevailing narrative, and that's that's in the end how I uh, ended up where I am. Well, um, you, you had dozens of assessments. Uh, before we go on, I should uh, ask our people in the audience, if you have any questions, please put them in the chat and we will get back to them shortly. But so, uh, can we get to the specifics? What did your panelists think? Uh, what, what was their diagnosis of Donald Trump and his dangers? Yes. Uh, again, we shied away from any diagnosis where our assessment was that he was mentally unfit. He had many signs of unfitness and dangerousness. Uh, dangerousness is clearly visible because it's, uh, uh, it's an external observation. Those with a history of violence are um, tend to have a future um, uh, probability of violence. And he had uh, been verbally aggressive. He had uh, boasted about his sexual assaults. He had incited violence at his rallies. He had spoken greatly about violence. He had praised um, violent weapons and he had uh, taunted uh, nations with uh, nuclear power. And, and so all these things make one dangerous. And when one is prone to violence, uh, it can manifest in many different areas, not just uh, what has happened in terms of incitement of uh, an insurrection, a violent insurrection at the US Capitol, um, but also the kind of uh, international strife that we see, the renewed nuclear arms race, uh, the destruction of our environment, um, and even the uh, disproportionate number of uh, COVID deaths that the United States has suffered um, could be attributed to his, his dangerous psychology. And all well, this- Part of this, I think you're, you're implying here, is that he was, um, like other Dictators who've gone over the rail uh, gone off the rails. He was impervious to opposing opinions or contradictory opinions. That's right, and also indifference in, indifferent to human life, or, or vast losses of life in favor of his own um, well, buttresses. Well, if they're dead, they're losers by definition. I think was the yes some his view on social ethics. Yes. <laughs> and of course, the degree of uh, that kind of um, self, self-centeredness, if you will, and, and inability to consider any, anyone or anything else, including the nation's interest, uh, uh, 
in favor of anything that would benefit himself in any way uh, is, is what we see in, um, in psychiatric settings because the degree of severity gives rise to enormous harm to human life and, uh, and um, impairment in everyday functioning. We did, in fact, do a full-scale mental fitness exam when the Mueller report came out, because even if the Mueller report was not enough to indict him, it was certainly uh, more than enough information to evaluate his fitness in a, with a rigor that we hardly ever get when we're doing court evaluations or evaluating for employers, um, because all this was reports by coworkers, close associates under sworn testimony. So it's just the best information we could ever get. So we ran a standard uh, mental fitness test and he failed every criterion. This is by a panel of the nation's top mental health experts. And um, there's, that means that not only was he unfit for the presidency, he was unfit for just about any job. He um, wouldn't get a driving license in some states, you sound. <laughs> right, right. Well, it, you know, in, in just about every function in the nation, you require mental fitness to be able to carry out. Not all require a fitness exam to start with, but once unfitness is detected, you would uh, you could require that they pass a test before continuing on, continuing on with their job, continuing on with whatever function they're uh, carrying out. And, uh, and yet, for the US presidency, no matter how unfit they are found to be, that does not disqualify from the, them from their position. And that is a very, very dangerous uh, situation to have. Well, you can almost see the point there is that, you know, psychiatry got a bad name in the Soviet Union because anyone who opposed the um, Moscow was ipso facto not quite sane. <laughs> Look at the consequences. It was a, it was a QED, circular reasoning. Um, That's why education is important. And people need to be fully informed about psychiatry, not be hushed about as as the APA was stating. The, uh, the APA's main uh, argument was that the more we talk about it, the more mental health will be stigmatized, when in fact research shows the opposite. The more we discuss and uh, make it a public discourse, educate the public, the less it is stigmatized. And the more people become aware so that we, we won't be led astray by any false evaluations. But then we have the paradox. Uh, the point of a democracy is any lunatic can run, but the public are assumed to have the, uh, you know, the acuity to see through and say that person is obviously not quite in touch with this world and that person is saying what I think. And I think that comes to your other point about the uh, psychological pandemic is that... Um, a horrifying proportion of the American electorate seem to harmonize with the uh, insanities that they're hearing from, from Mar-a-Lago. Uh, and, and even people like Alan Dershowitz and, um, and the American Psychiatric Association <laughs> are, are prepared to go out on a limb for somebody who, you know, most people look and think he, he, is, he is not of this world. How did he get there? I wouldn't elect him as a dog warden in a, in a parish, let alone uh, to this position. Yes. But he gets there, and this means he, he has 
some skills, and I don't know whether you can evaluate those in, in terms of charisma and plausibility. And, you know, he, he really is straight out of George Orwell. How many fingers am I holding up? He says five and everyone says five. Yes, yes, he's right. I can only see five fingers. <laughs> uh, it, 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 is, uh, it, it is stunning and breathtaking and terrifying. Yes. Uh, well, in fact, uh, I would distinguish between talent in gathering the following and getting ahead and uh, the, the relentless compulsion of pathology. So if you put pathology side by side with, a, with the world's greatest strategist, pathology will win. So what do you do in such a situation? You have to read out the pathology. And um, well, as to your question about what, uh, you know, about anyone being allowed to run in, in a democracy, I would agree with that. But it's somewhat the other way around in that we, just as any other function requires a basic level of mental capacity to be able to do, even a democracy, you need mental capacity to be able to uh, have a democratic society. Otherwise, you will no longer have a de democratic society very quickly. And that's actually the, the avenue we are headed in. And this is actually the natural uh, path of admitting someone without the mental capacity to be in a power position in the power position. Um, and so how do we get there without forcing, uh, uh, forcing a fitness test, for example, or requirements that people uh, are not aware of? It's through education and agreement. There needs to be a social contract. Uh, otherwise, well, we have decided that we, uh, that presidents should be at least 35 years old. Why is that? There, there is a reason for that. We would not allow a five-year-old to run. But what if one were impaired to the point where one is functioning as a five-year-old? <laughs> Mental age of five. <laughs> exactly. And it's not as uncommon as we believe. In fact, um, what we are seeing in terms of the population is that when we have a developmentally wounded individual in the power position, then all those with developmental wounds, uh, either because of uh, developmental arrest due to trauma or upbringing or so forth, or because or by regression as a result of uh, societal stress, will be magnetically attracted to this individual far beyond anything that any rational thought can can uh, control. And so that's a very dangerous situation. That's really what needs to be prevented far in advance of it happening. You might remember there's a movie about the era that gave birth to the American Republic, The Madness of King George III. Yes, and so right. that was a monarchy against which the American colonists were allegedly rebelling. And uh, yet that, that had a mechanism. They basically looked and said, yes, he's the king, and we respect he's the king, but he's also... <laughs> he's also not there. So we'll remove, we'll, we'll put him to one side and appoint a regent. And one of the problems there is, you've just mentioned that the American Psychiatric Association had given itself a, a sort of self-denying order. Who would we trust to make an assessment to appoint a regent for the um, president of the United States? That's right. It won't work in a, in a culture of corruption. And when there's a lot of corruption, uh, institutions stop working. 
uh, I would say that's the case with the American Psychiatric Association. The reason I left was because it was advantaging pharmaceutical company interests above patient interests. And that's when uh, a psychiatric association is no longer uh, functioning in its role. And when government officials are present to enrich themselves at the expense of the nation rather than serving the nation, then the, the political institution is also being compromised, uh, the judicial body as well. And uh, yes, these are kind, the kinds of things that the people will be able to police if they were uh, allowed to, um, if they were given the kind of power, educational background, healthcare supports in all different directions as a de democratic society would. Uh, you strip those things away and uh, people's ability to self-rule also gets compromised. We have an atmosphere of intimidation, um, physical and mental. Uh, there is a background of physical violence, as we see from the demonstrations, people turning up, load armed to the teeth, you know, um, they're, they're wandering there with equipped, better equipped for battle than most of the Russian conscripts, it would appear. Um, yeah. And so they're, they're turning up outside state houses and outside courtrooms and uh, in an intimidatory way. And we have a U.S. Senate that faced with uh, evidence and impeachment. If Donald Trump appeared in front of them wearing his underpants on his head and a banana stuck in each ear, they'd still vote not to impeach. <laughs> so it, it's very difficult to think of mechanisms uh, apart from uh, reputed psychiatrists giving their views which is one of the reasons why you're being silenced. And uh, Ronald Brin, one of our distinguished members, is, um, is, is just put up, it's not so much a question as a, a tweak, Elon Musk, the new killer of public speech. And it does seem that Elon Musk uh, has, uh, superficially, I have not done a psychiatric evaluation with or without the APA, but he has many of the narcissist traits uh, in a layman's terms, at least, that we associate with Donald Trump. And people like this and the other tech billionaires control the levers. Would Donald Trump have got away with this without the backing of the Fox, of, of Rupert Murdoch and the Fox Empire, for example? If, if Twitter went there to amplify his every word. Uh, so it, it's not just a case of him and his psychopathology, it's the psychopathology of the society itself, isn't it? Yes, that is why psychiatrists cannot be isolated in an office with treating individuals alone. We have to apply the principles that we know in a psychosocial manner that applies also to, uh, to society. And when it becomes dire in uh, certain, uh, uh, certain arenas, such as politics, uh, to, to make the warnings that we can and to speak about the dangers that we see, as a part of our public health role is mandatory. It is, not, uh, it is not stepping outside of our role. And for most of my career, I have not spoken about any political figure because none had become as dangerous as uh, during the era of Donald Trump. And of course, now we are seeing multiple replications of him because others uh, see him as an example of success. And not only are uh, those with similar pathology uh, encouraged to run for office and to run uh, to to employ his methods, 
but uh, those who have had latent uh, symptoms of, of his kind are, are now also coming out with, uh, uh, with their uh, shadow side, if you will. Um, and, and that's the phenomenon that I have called uh, shared psychosis. Uh, perhaps that sounds severe, but it's merely the phenomenon of uh, symptoms encouraging other symptoms to come forth. And uh, some of what we see are very dangerous because they are violence, proneness, uh, detachment from reality, and uh, indifference, uh, callous indifference to human life. Another of our members, Jonathan Kapstein, had written this question just as you started speaking. And he says, and it's direct invitation to you, it seems to me there are two issues here. One is academic freedom and journalist freedom, in which you are clearly a victim. The other is the psychiatric assessment of Trump, which is somewhat still undefined. Is he in fact a pathological personality according to psychiatric definitions? If so, what sort? There are any number of narcissists in public office, for example, but the vast majority are not clinical cases. Is Trump a clinical case? And if so, what is your spe specific diagnosis these days? I could almost ask, since it ties with the pharmaceutical company, what would your specific prescription be? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I think he, uh, more so than uh, diagnosis, which is uh, what we do in individual treatment settings where we diagnose in order to treat. Uh, more important than that is his behavior and the degree of uh, dangerousness, which, is, which speaks to the uh, uh, pathological degree of some of the things that you have been seeing. I think uh, most people can see by now that he has prominent narcissistic traits, sociopathic traits, and uh, perhaps would meet the criteria for a dozen different diagnoses. So, uh, so we won't make a final diagnosis, but, but we can make those statements. And in fact, the book that we published uh, lists all the, all the major possibilities, which is called the differential diagnosis. I know that's not satisfying as in stating that he has, for example, narcissistic personality disorder. Let me just say that all symptoms are to a degree of pathology that would be alarming and beyond the public's ability to grasp, which is why it is critical to have expert voices in the public arena for I tend, to be able to protect I tend to think the specific diagnosis with the code numbers in the American Psychiatric Manual are more to do with the insurance companies than with the patient or medical, medical science. Uh, so, right. I mean, I, yes, I don't need to know which code number is. I can see that he is not quite fit for office <laughs> and, and I will do it in a sort of general way. Ronald Brin comes back to say mentally, mentally ill leaders impact millions. Should sovereignty be suspended until corrected? Well, that's, that's dangerous because you'd need a psychopath to take sovereignty around surely. surely. Um, you know, it's uh, obviously Stalin and Lenin both thought that they knew better than the people, uh, what was good for the people. Um, it's a characteristic of all of these people. But you, you mentioned an interesting point about how this is sort of infectious. It's not just infectious for crowds. It seems to be infectious in political systems. And as we look around the world and where the Foreign Press Association were entitled to do that, when you add up uh, the, the recent rulers of Britain, uh, Russia, Brazil, the Philippines, uh, and you can't help but wonder, you know, what is it? You know, they, they used to say that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But 
the absolutism is getting worse everywhere. And uh, they're seeing that other people are getting away with it. And for electors are seeing across the world that other countries have managed to elect people of, uh, let's say, dubious intellect and morality to high office. And they're going along with it as well. And is there any anyone who can cry a halt and or any little boy who can stand up and say the emperor's not wearing any clothes? Well, that's what we try to do. And we also try to warn that what looked normal in Donald Trump will soon become abnormal because the more power he is given, the more the he will balloon in his delusions of grandeur and his defiance in order to uh, convince himself really that he is uh, that he is um, somebody and not a nobody, which is really his underlying fear. Um, the, the, the intolerable sense of inadequacy and worthlessness uh, not only drive one to attain power that one is unable to handle, once given the power, uh, they are likely to abuse it in ways that will only become uh, absolutely uncontrollable uh, the more they are allowed to do it. So, uh, so it's really incumbent on the rest of us, the healthy part of the population, to well, stop I'm such. I'm not sure about that. But still. <laughs> In the healthy happens. part is we have. Um, you know, I look at this. I'm looking at somebody who, for thirty since I first saw him thirty years ago, and I started writing about him, I've decided was a, a blustering, bluffing, um, hot air balloon. And yet other people saw him as a wonderfully eminent, um, you know, astute leader of people who reflects the people's choice. And of course, the crucial context here was that uh, TV and radio and the internet between them combined to reinforce his own self-image for everybody else. But how, yeah. how long, I mean, how can this carry, how, how long can this carry on before the balloon implodes? Well, I'm afraid uh, we haven't reached the end because we haven't really intervened in ways that are commensurate with the problem here. That is why uh, we have said over and over that uh, a proper intervention is necessary. That is at this time, prosecution, containment, removal from public exposure, but we are actually doing the opposite. We've uh, refused to contain him. Uh, articles have come out about how the Democratic leadership uh, deliberately did not impeach him. And um, the, uh, this kind of automatic deference to positions of power, rather than seeing these positions as uh, uh, obligations and uh, required service to the public, we, uh, we simply worship, as you were saying, uh, those who have attained power positions. And so power positions are extraordinarily attractive to these kinds of individuals. You know, um, the, the US became familiar with his personality structure with, uh, with his presidency, Donald Trump's presidency. But I have seen this throughout my career. Uh, most of them were contained in jails and prisons because my work is with violent offenders. Uh, we, we started 20 years ago where I mostly saw the vast majority of them in um, correctional settings. And now they are occupying a vast uh, portion of uh, leadership positions. How did they get there? 
it is we as a society who have uh, neglected to, to do our duty of containing the dangers, containing, uh, holding leaders to account and requiring fitness for, uh, for positions. I mean, CEO positions now routinely require fitness tests because there were just so many sociopaths entering into uh, corporations and essentially stealing, not just from the corporation. Well, that's not being very successful. I know several psychopaths who are CEOs. <laughs> So, so it's it's a mistake to see that as success. It's a mistake to see Donald Trump as a success. Uh, we need to see it for what it is. It is uh, it is dangerous pathology. He needs to be contained. He needs to be removed from public exposure. The infectiousness you described, the contagion effect, is extremely dangerous. Uh, one often assumes that the mind is contained in the body, and so uh, the mind mental symptoms are not contagious, but in fact, they are more contagious because they don't require physical exposure to be uh, to, to transmit. Uh, rather, they transmit by emotional bonds. And the longer we allow such individuals uh, public exposure, the more they will create, the more they will beguile. Uh, people have compared them to a hypnotist. They do use hypnotic techniques. And they are skillful because all their lives, this is all that they have done, uh, using all their intellect and all their skills to be able to simply beguile and, uh, and, and bring over people to their side so that they could altogether be destroyed, if that's, if that's the nature of pathology. But it's, um, as I've said, it's, it's quite powerful. Uh, well, one time, a, a Donald Trump or any other politician, uh, he could be heard within earshot ear ear shot of a soapbox. There's some constraints on it, but I mean, we, what we have since then is uh, incredible amplification. Recently, we had a panel uh, about the uh, pre-war um, newspaper barons who supported Hitler almost until 1941, and um, in Britain and America. And... Uh, most of them saw the light once the flags were raised and, and realized that their audience, they would lose their audiences. But uh, then there were laws about amassing too much power. You couldn't own every newspaper in a city. There were anti-monopoly laws. You certainly couldn't own both the newspapers and the radios and the television and the, um, the, the, the internet and the, the, the Twitter, the means of conveying information. And yet we've now accepted unprecedented concentration of uh, communication power and put it in the hands of people uh, like Elon Musk, uh, who are, or Ronald Murdoch, uh, but, but, uh, Rupert Murdoch, who are, you know, if not insane, at least unscrupulous, <laughs> we I could say. I think it's dangerous to have psychological knowledge in the hands of those who are trying to influence and shape the public to in order to control it, while at the same time gagging mental health professionals who would use the knowledge to, to warn the public and to educate the public to be able to arm themselves against this kind of onslaught. And in fact, the psych, uh, psychological, um, it's, it's actual, actually psychological manipulation, conditioning, and, and violence, really, that we are 
that we are inflicting on the population. When, when Fox News first came out, I believe it, it was in the mid or late 90s, um, I, I became very alarmed and thought at that time that down the line, we would see dangers in the, uh, in the population, that there would be a psychological conditioning for it to be controlled by figures such as Donald Trump. And, and I would say Donald Trump is nearly the front person of many forces that are trying to control the public so as to, uh, to dominate and rule and no longer make democracy possible, uh, as opposed to allowing the people to speak for themselves. So it's really uh, uh, a guise to, uh, and, and, uh, and, um, and misleading uh, statement to say that uh, Donald Trump is a reflection of what people want or that uh, they are giving people what they want because they are so enthusiastic about Trump. Um, they have been conditioned to be this way, to uh, oppose their own interests and to support a pathological figure. Uh, in order to simply follow him down like a Pied Piper. Um, so that, that was the danger that I saw 25 years ago that is playing out right now. Well, I, I used to appear on, um, on Fox. Uh, I, was, uh, I always said I was the, I was the Christian. They said that. I was the lion they threw to the Christians. They, they always had one dissenting voice because it made for good television, as one of them told me. But they've, they've stopped that completely now, as far as I can tell. They don't allow any dissent at all. And, um, you know, uh, it, was, it, was, it was interesting uh, the, how, how that developed. I know that the first time I appeared, they had a sort of uh, an autopsy to decide what lunatic had let me on, <laughs> which I took as a compliment. <laughs> but they've deteriorated since then. And part of the rule is that the Federal Communications Commission used to control and determine an often spurious balance about, but there was supposedly a balance between Republicans and Democrats, at least. Now, both of those have uh, polarized to an unprecedented degree, and any pretense of balance has just disappeared. Um, that it's not the business of news, it's, it's not the legal business of news media to be balanced. That was well, written out by the very people that are elected by this process. So it, it, it's, how do you get out of the hole that we've worked ourselves into? So I, I think getting to the source of uh, the, the problems, which is, um, you know, people's attraction to uh, an unfit leader, these things can be ameliorated by uh, buttressing democracy. In other words, uh, true democracy, where, where there's greater equality between the rich and the poor, uh, greater distribution of education, healthcare, and ability to make a living. Uh, these kinds of conditions are not just materially helpful, it's also psychologically helpful, allows a population to be able to, uh, to um, be healthier and not be attracted to uh, unhealthy individuals, um, and to be able to be more discerning, uh, and to be more capable of self-rule. In, in such a situation, there would be a lot less of these rulers. 
So in a sense, what we're seeing is actually a progression of uh, the widening gap between the rich and the poor worldwide, the rising inequalities. And uh, to what extent is, I mean, certainly with individuals, stress plays a large part in, a part in being able to um, sort of deliver rational decisions. Uh, so, you know, the stress of combating poverty, healthcare, paying bills, employment, all of these other things uh, will contribute to both individually and collectively to some degree of irrationality. And in the past, there have been studies on the psychology of crowds. You know, crowds do strange things they wouldn't do individually. They'll, they'll hunt witches, they'll burn heretics, they'll, they'll burn down town halls, uh, they'll storm the White House. <laughs> well, since Gustave Le Bon uh, uh, published uh, The Masses, um, it, uh, we have learned that um, crowds can actually um, be rational. And that has been produced by uh, strong democracies. If we educate the public enough and strengthen the public enough, then such irrational behavior will not occur and not accrue with groups. Because what happens with groups is that whatever is there is amplified. And so if the, uh, the individuals who are getting together are um, enlightened and educated and uh, well-fed and healthy, um, they will not be prone. In fact, uh, it would have an augmenting effect of increasing their rationality rather than irrationality. So that's, it, it's known to go both ways. Mm -hmm. uh, Ron Brin again is saying, Did, didn't Trump say he wouldn't wear a mask when sitting across from dictators? Was he trying to infect them or was he trying to get infected with whatever <laughs> gave them their power? Well, uh, we know from even the time when he did get infected, he was trying to deny that he had the illness or that it wasn't a big deal, even as he was courting all the best treatments available uh, in the world. But um, uh, yes, that's uh, COVID became tightly tied to his uh, identity and that he had to show that it wasn't a big deal in order to uh, deny his mismanagement. Even inability. while getting the America's best scientist on the scientific treatments for it. Yes, that's right. So we're coming towards the end now, and it's been a very fruitful discussion, and I'm even more appalled than I first was <laughs> from, from, from what you've said. But what about the... Um, have you had a bouquet of flowers and an apology note from Alan Dershowitz yet? <laughs> I, I don't expect one, and I actually uh, don't think he's capable of such a thing. For similar reasons. For similar reasons, yes. That's the reason why I made my comment that um, there, there is uh, uh, an augmenting effect when similar personalities come together. Um, well, we couldn't expect the share of Jeffrey Epstein's um, hospitality, uh, Donald Trump's accolades, and the defender of New York, a USA's mayor, <laughs> who, who, right. who holds press conferences outside uh, strip malls and, and <laughs> cemetery Lumber <offices>. yards. <laughs> yes, um, to, to, to show any great modesty. But he still gets published. It, 
comes back to your point before is the US and editors uh, have an incredible deference for accepted authority. So Professor Alan Dershowitz is going to be listened to no matter what absolute excreta he comes out with. And, and we have to develop our bearings, uh, our bearings on truth and, uh, and also be um, grounded in the best available knowledge that we have. That's why the position of journalists and intellectuals is so important in a society that is falling into authoritarianism, which is by definition deferring to authority authority figures over true authority. Well, I'm really sad that that's all we have time for. And thank you very much for coming. And I think it's uh, it, it's actually straight deeper than I expected into our media territory, which is good because it is what we're about. And I hope that uh, you can get your stories and that you can approach Dr. Lee for more comments uh, because the time is coming up when a psychiatric evaluation of the contending of the contendants uh, for the next. Um, I, I, you can bet that some people in the GOP will be asking for a geriatric evaluation of Joseph Biden as the time comes on. Who would be yes, totally I'm appalled at the idea of a psychiatric evaluation of Donald it's called Trump? Projection, projection. They give away what they have. Not it has very little to do with the other side. But please let me uh, thank you for this and and um, uh, invite you, any of you, to get in touch if uh, we can lend our commentary in any way because we have a whole group that's. Uh, eager to do so, the World Mental Health Coalition and myself. Uh, I'm, I'm the president of it, um, and I can be reached at sandylee.com. Okay, well, thank you very much. And uh, members and others of the FPA, get in touch with me if you need to uh, speak to Dr. Lee. And you need, we need to speak to Dr. Lee in the couples. <laughs> Thank you very much, and we hope to see you later in the week. By the way, we have the U.S. representative, the Kuomintang, which had some unexpected successes in Taiwan this week. And for years, we've been hearing from the DPP, the elected, and I must say, pleasantly so, uh, ta ta uh, government of Taiwan. But we haven't heard from the Kuomintang, who haven't had a presence here in the United States. And it's a mysterious position why the descendants of Chiang Kai-shek should be most favoured in Beijing and vice versa. It's, it's a mystery which is explicable and Dr. Huang will explain it to us this Friday. I'll get the, we'll get the details later. Thank you very much. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you.